0: the car tech garage opening the hood for all things automotive i'm wesley adams and i'm max Gundrum, and we are the car tech guys
1: history racing repair and all the parts in between hit us up on social media at the car tech garage Hello, everyone, and thanks again for tuning into the Car Tech Garage and another week in automotive history. Yes, yeah, yet again, another week in automotive history. Yet again, indeed. Anyway, well, let's go ahead and kick it off. January 31st, 1971, 50 years ago. Um, so this guy named Jackie Oliver, uh, most people haven't heard of him. Uh, he was driving at the 24 Hours of Daytona with his co-driver, Pedro Rodriguez. So both of these guys, really, really great drivers. Jackie Oliver, obviously, is a pretty famous guy. Um, you know, he Formula One driver. He, he's won all sorts of stuff. Pedro Rodriguez was also a fantastic driver as well. But they won the 24 Hours of Daytona there in 1971, driving a Porsche 917 K, which was a fantastic car. So at the time. Porsche had also entered the Canadian American Challenge Cup. Okay. And their 19, 917K was, you know, battling out with the McLarens on
0: tracks, you know, uh, you know over in the U.S. So was this in the Canadian American, the Can-Am racing yeah. series? Okay. Yeah, exactly. And we we so, talked
1: a little bit about that. Yeah, we did. We did. So, yeah, obviously Porsche's, you know, uh, 917, you know, eventually the 930 and all that stuff came about. But they were racing a 917K, still a very capable race car. Um, the Roger Penske team who was driving a Ferrari at the time, Mark Donahue and David Hobbs were driving the Ferrari 512 M they won pole on the race. Um, and they were leading the early stages, you know, arguably a faster car too, but, you know, obviously pretty evenly matched drivers. Um, they ended up having an accident that, you know, involved a little bit of the field. So a lot of people got, you know, kind of drawn back 18 hours in Rodriguez and Oliver were up by 43 laps. So a huge lead. Yeah. You know, almost guaranteed to win it, you know, pretty much had it in the bag. Transmission seizes. It gets stuck in gear and they have to nurse it all the way back to pit lane. Wait, we're, we're still 43 laps ahead. Still 40. Yeah. So right now everybody's, they're kind of worried, but (laughs) they end up getting it repaired. You know, they, they get the transmission installed, but it takes them over an hour. So in in that lightning fast for swapping out a transmission, Exactly. Yeah. in a race car, race car, I guess. obviously, you know, some certain things are still pretty accessible. Um, And this was 1971. So there weren't a whole lot of electronics and things like that. So Mm. it was still doable, but nonetheless they had to diagnose the problem, get all that stuff repaired. And then they got it back on the road, uh, I think just like an hour and a half later. And in that time, one of the other Ferrari teams had actually gotten back up in the lead and they overtook them by two more laps. So even being down 43 laps within that hour and a half, the Ferrari had caught back up you know, passed them and gotten back into the lead. And um, Rodriguez hopped back in the car. He was able to run them down and pass them securing the win a few laps before the end. So Porsche, of course, won the 1974, 24 hours of Le Mans with Jackie Alvers so and Rodriguez driving.
0: 43 laps down, transmission breaks, hour later, put the transmission and still come around, win the race. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. That's just how it was done in (laughs) 1971.
1: That's what I brought up on the radio show when we're going over this because racing was so much cooler back in the day. Like nowadays you only have so many engines and transmissions. So something like this in a current F1 race and you're done. Yeah, And in many cases, any other 24 hour competition, whether it be at Le Mans, you know, Sebring or at,
0: at, um, you know, uh, Daytona, like it was here you're you're done yeah you're not gonna you know i mean you might finish the race and go in but you're definitely not winning there's Absolutely, yeah, no question done. at all but
1: back then you know the, the cars were of course more prone to certain types of failures and you know it was just balls of the wall racing you know obviously many more accidents and things like that but it was certainly more interesting to watch and harder to bet on
0: <laughs> yeah i'm sure you know you really now if you think about it most failures in any kind of racing are usually due to you know crashes with yeah. each other you know for the most part unless you you're really... ferrari
1: and f1 then it's just the whole car just throw it away
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah just get the new one move on <laughs> to the next
1: well for for the 2020 season we'll, we'll see how they turn <laughs> around in 2021 but there's actually it, f1 racing is going to be awesome here in 2021 they've got you know totally different drivers line up um, in certain teams anyways, you know, a couple of people have moved around. I'm really excited to see how it all turns out. Yeah. It should be an exciting year. Yeah. I'm pretty confident Mercedes is still going to dominate
0: and still going to win again, but you know, it's just how they, yeah. how that goes with racing. Yes, yeah. You can talk about it with sports and yeah. you know, Tom Brady, they were dominant in the fifties too. With, <laughs> I know we don't talk about sports on here, but you know, yeah, I, exactly. I could well, make that comparison. Anybody likes sports. Yeah. I have almost no idea. I, like, I know a <laughs> little bit. Similar. I know enough to nod my head. He's and like agree. the guy that he's really good and you respect him, but you just kind of want him to go away. <laughs> you know, it's like that kind of race car driver well, that just keeps thing. winning races. You know, Mercedes came back after a long hiatus. They, they
1: raced, I think in 1955 and that was at Le Mans. And uh, that was even when uh, Juan, Mel, Juan Manuel Fangio was driving for them and they had this huge accident. Um, that killed like 83 people, uh, not, not Juan, but uh, the other driver, I can't even remember his name right off the top of my head, but, um, he wrecked into the stands, killed like 80 people. Seriously. Oh yeah. It it was the, the single most devastating racing accident of all time. And Mercedes withdrew from racing entirely. They withdrew from the race. They withdrew from racing entirely up until 1983, I think it was. And that's when they started to get it back into other forms of racing. But you know, they, they took almost a 30 year hiatus. From racing and still are are coming in and
0: dominating. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And they come back and just start winning again. All right. Let's go ahead and keep moving on. February 1st, 1947, (laughs) 74 years ago, Mr. Enzo Ferrari, who you guys probably don't know. Yeah. Yeah, He announced his first production model. Uh, it was called the 125S. Now, I know all you Ferrari buffs out there are like it wasn't his first car, and I know that. I know that. Um he also made another car in partnership with Fiat that was called the Audio uh, sorry, Auto Avio Construzioni is how he oh, spelled wow. it. Yeah, basically, you know, it's an automobile. with their um, Italian names, you know. It know. it's got to be something long. So much flair. And yeah. but that was called the 815. Um, eight cylinders, one point five liters. It was intended as a race car. And that was back in nineteen forty before World War II, you know, really got rampant. Um, and of course it wasn't here until nineteen forty-seven that he was able to, you know, get everything back in line, get enough material together to start building a car again after, you know, the the world had kind of you know regained some yeah. balance. Stopped, you know, for a brief moment of yeah, anything exactly. else. Like,
0: stop fighting.
1: All right, <laughs> and but that, that was the first vehicle to bear the Ferrari name. The actual Ferrari name was this 125 S in 1947. Now you know, just like the 815, it was intended as a race car, but unlike its Fiat-powered eight-cylinder predecessor, this new 125 S had a V12, and um, this was the to-be-famous Colombo V12. Now the okay. Colombo V12, okay. you've heard of that before. Mm. That went through many different evolutions in Ferrari's lineup, but this was the smallest one they had made, the 1.5 liter. They, a 1.5 liter V12. So small. That's so small. Teensy. You think about that. Now you hear 1.5 liters, you're thinking, you know, three and four-cylinder engines. Yeah, like most of the Ford, you know, EcoBoost engines yeah. that we see in normal cars. That's like if you sat on your desk, it would look like a toy. It would look like a you know, basically a paperweight <laughs> with 12 cylinders. Yeah, exactly. 12 cylinders, but it was still able 1.5 liters naturally aspirated. Um, about 120 horsepower is what ratings were. Um, but it
0: revved to almost 7,000 RPMs, which was huge for the time. This was 1947. Yeah. That's, I mean, even nowadays, you know, I'm- Normal vehicle, you know, four-cylinder, six-cylinder, that's even still up there in, in RPMs for your exactly. normal passenger like car. Like, they were still manually balancing all of these rotating components. Think about that. Yeah, that's insane in itself that you can make an engine so perfect that it doesn't want to throw itself apart, apart you know, yeah. in that period of time. Where now we've got, you know, CNC machining, 3D, everything, you know, super advanced technology that can cut it to the, the finest yeah, the finest detail possible. And yeah, so so the 125S uh, nine and a half to one compression ratio,
1: single overhead cam, still two valves per cylinder, um, three Weber carburetors.
0: Okay, still ran Weber carburetors. That's that's neat on an Italian car. But it's an Italian carburetor. <laughs> oh,
1: okay. Or I did not know that. that. Yeah, yeah, Mister Weber. <laughs> so that's really cool. Sneaky. Yeah, five-speed uh, transmission. Ferrari was very. Um, this was actually one really cool thing. He was very keen on having a five-speed transmission because he knew that this small, high-revving engine was going, you know, only to have a power band up in the higher RPM.
0: So he wanted to make sure he had a close-ratio stacked gearbox what, so, at the time, what were they mostly? Most three full, and four speeds, okay. yeah. yeah. So he was kind of the in, innovator, let's throw an extra gear
1: in there. Exactly. Like prior to World War II, they were monstrous cars, like these huge engines, you know, so you didn't really have to worry about a close ratio gearbox when you have a 12 liter aero engine yeah. under the hood. It's got power. Pretty, yeah, exactly. It's got tons of torque, and that's usually what they relied on. But, um, you know, obviously Ferrari was, he was a driver's man. And, you know, he uh, he definitely wanted something that was going to be able to out-handle and out-maneuver other things on the racetrack because circuit racing was starting to grow yeah. in popularity at the time. And he's actually one of the guys who really, you know, was an
0: advocate for it. You got to think probably at the time, what, as you said, you know, most things were V8 engines out there with a loud grumble and, and just that V8 characteristic where now you've got this little small 12-cylinder that rev to the moon at the time, yeah. you know, it's the same comparison we have, you know, nowadays with a, a Chevy LS engine or a like of a those. Honda F20C or, yeah, or something. Where it yeah. just revs the moon and sounds so much, you know, just it, it goes further versus that V8 kind of stops and then goes, yeah. stops and goes. Exactly. And it was crazy, you know, because at this point, they didn't have a
1: lot of metallurgy advancement, like with valve springs and things like mm-hmm. that. So they couldn't hit that nine and 10,000 RPM
0: limit because, you know, valve float would occur. You got to think of how fast, you know, moving components are actually going inside yeah. of an engine. Not just the crankshaft, but just yeah. every little small detail is flying, you yeah, know, you at 9,000 RPMs. Yeah, like the, the camshafts and the valves are moving much faster than the crank
1: is. And all that's yeah. built with cranks. You so. can't see it visually whatsoever. <laughs> no. It's moving that fast. Gosh, no. All right, so we'll move on again. February 2nd, 1923, 98 years ago, uh, one of the biggest mistakes in automotive history, gasoline mixed with lead, was first sold to the public at a roadside gas station in Dayton. Mr. Willard Talbot. 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 Yeah, it was with an L, I remember. (laughs) So they called it ethyl gasoline. Um, So that term was actually coined by Charles Kettering who was a really, really big, big wig at uh, General Motors back in 1917. He's famous for producing the Delco electrical system on the Cadillacs. Okay. That was the charging and starting system. And, of course, that ended up becoming Delco and AC Delco that we know today. Mm -hmm. So he started all that stuff. Um, but they basically were in a lab at General Motors. They were trying to discover an anti-knock agent that they could add into gasoline. For those of you guys who don't know, engine knock is pre-detonation in the engine. So when the cylinder uh, basically gets either hot enough, usually hot enough, um, or if the compression ratio just ig- happens to ignite the fuel at a certain uh, you know, heat point when it's not actually induced by the spark plug. So it detonates early and it can, can of course, cause engine damage and definitely robs you of power. So they were trying all this different stuff to raise the octane level, which is going to essentially, you know, uh, reduce the proneness to engine knock and gasoline. Mm -hmm. And what they came up with was adding lead obviously helped. And uh, for nearly six decades, gasoline companies totally ignored the known dangers of lead poisoning, um, you know, associated with this type of gasoline. And it didn't take it didn't happen until 1986
0: when they totally phased it out. What's an amazing, obviously had about 60 year, you know, running mm-hmm. in the industry. That's why when you go to the gas station, you it's see unleaded. unleaded on there. Cause I always wonder that I'm like, isn't it all unleaded? You know, yeah. didn't they cut that out years now ago? Is, but... Why, why is the sign still say unleaded? Mm-hmm. And of course now they have other, you know, anti-knock agents and things mm-hmm. like that. I'm no chemist. So, if, you know, I, what's funny but... is on the radio show, we had a, a guy call in, I think it, I forget what vehicle it was on, but he had a knock sensor code. So mm-hmm. newer vehicles the actually, Dakota. yeah, the Dakota had a knock, well, they have a knock sensors on most vehicles, and it's just, you know, a small little sensor that detects those vibrations in the engine, and they're pretty common to failing, too. Yeah, exactly. Most of the time, it's an electrical issue. Mm -hmm. You know, when you actually hear a knock sensor,
1: unless something's really wrong, but now we actually monitor an engine for that, or for
0: NOx. Yeah, a- and it's today's. really good
1: because in modern engines, they're so good at it. You really could throw a lot of different types of fuels at them. Like the, the flex fuels are really cool because they use the NOx sensor data to
0: determine the timing and the the fuel delivery when you switch fuels and that's you know simple flex fuel if for anybody that doesn't know it essentially can run on you know different octane levels and ratings and basically compensate for that different fuel and and change how the engine works to 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 make it run track timing and everything like that and the simplest you know forms
1: for what flex fuel is yeah yeah but nonetheless terrible terrible idea willard yeah you know (laughs) all right so uh february 3rd 1953 Mr. Art Chrisman, uh, he made the first sub 10 second quarter mile run and the first also over 140 miles an hour with basically a home-built drag car. Art Chrisman's like super famous in the drag racing world. Nowadays, a lot of people don't know about him because it was, you know, pretty far ago. It was even before the muscle car era, but he was also the first drag racer to hit 180 miles an hour in the quarter. And he was the fifth only person uh, or the fifth person to reach 200 miles an hour at the Bonneville Salt Flats and even in today's standards that those are very fast times and speeds now there's probably hundreds of people in that club now but he was the fifth person in that club too so still pretty influential guy nice one to tell all your buddies like yeah i was the fifth in the entire world yeah or at (laughs) least at the bonneville soft yeah but but still i mean to um, that that still makes him probably like one of the first 25 or 30 guys to go 200 miles an hour so Mm -hmm.
0: it's still a really big accomplishment that'd be neat You know, being like, hey, I went 350 miles an hour the other day on the road. (laughs) I was the first. Yeah, that would just be such a
1: cool feeling. Yeah, imagine how, like, Andy Green feels, like the guy that drove SSC Thrust and
0: holds the current world land speed record. That guy. I mean, everything's got to be slow. He probably hops in an airplane like, why are we in the slow lane right now? (laughs) (laughs) It's like somebody's passing us.
1: But, well, he was he well he was also an Air Force pilot, so he's went even faster than oh, that in okay, the air okay. too. Yeah, so he's that makes sense. No, that he's make just sense. way cooler than we are. Yeah, and really <laughs> likes going fast. Oh yeah. All right, February fourth, nineteen twenty 1929, 92 years ago, the very last Plymouth Model Q was produced. Now this um, it's not super significant to a lot of people. Yeah, that's what I've never heard of it. The Model Q was the Ford Model T and Chevrolet four nineties competition. Okay,
0: okay, so. That's...
1: The Ford Model T came out in 1908. Shortly thereafter, Chevrolet came out with their 490 model because mm-hmm. it was initially priced at $490. It ended up going down in price, back up in price. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. But um, it wasn't until, you know, up until 1929, a long, long time after that, that uh, the Chrysler Corporation, who, you know, Walter Chrysler started it, he wanted to compete with this lower budget cars because at the time, Chryslers were, you know, kind of the Mac daddy. You know, it was Chrysler and Cadillac. And then, you know, Duesenberg, those were the the three car companies that you went to if you wanted a luxury car. And he created the Plymouth brand basically as a sub brand to offer less expensive models in the lineup. So, you know, when they started that, they named this new Plymouth the Model Q. And um, they came out at Madison Square Gardens and it was driven out by Miss Amelia Earhart.
0: They hired her for it. Yeah, 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 yeah of course.
1: Um, and it only lasted for two years. It's production around that is 66,000 of them were made. Um, it still fared pretty well, you know, I mean, to think about in two years, they sold 66,000 cars. That was actually a really big number, um, because the car was only a little bit more expensive than, you know, the, the Model T and the 490, but it came with many, many more features. And the most pivotal thing about this car wasn't just its two years in production, but that they kept the Plymouth brand with its newer cars through the depression and, that Plymouth brand basically got Chrysler through to the depression because people still came in and bought their cars because it's what they could afford at the time. Yeah. and so that's it was very pivotal That's really too. cool. Yeah, and especially the Great Depression knocked out a ton of car manufacturers. Like, if if it weren't for that, we would probably have, who knows how many uh, car brands At least double. You you know, uh, what yeah, we've at gotten. least double. I mean, I'm sure they probably all would have still, you know, monopolized this and, and merged and blah, blah, blah. But the cool part is, you know, it would have been— much more diverse, yeah. you know, because, you know, many other now almost unknown
0: marquees were, you know, they lost everything during. Well, it's just neat, you know, how they have their different brands, even though it's under the same company, they have their different styles and different brands. And, you know, luckily that still follows through today with, you know, GM, which Chevy, GMC, Cadillac, yeah. all of them are all under the same boat, but totally different, yeah. you know. And it's smart.
1: You can use that of the same part bin and everything. But yeah. It was still pretty cool because back then, you know, nowadays it seems like you have a pretty typical formula for a vehicle. Mm. You know, everybody kind of follows the same thing, different design aspects here and there, but ultimately it's pretty much the same stuff back then. People
0: were just, it was all homebrewed. Yeah, let's try this and yeah. see if anybody likes it. And people either love it or hate it. A lot more experimental with almost no laws surrounding it. So they didn't like, have Google to go look up, you know, how
1: to build a car. Yeah, nobody came in either and said, you can't make this, you can't sell this, you can't drive this on the road. Yeah, It was like, well, if, it, if it, he made it, it rolls. That's if it fine, rolls, let him drive it.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it can be on the road. Yeah. All right, so February 5th in 1931, 90 years ago, um Mr. Malcolm Campbell. Now he is one of my favorite people in history because he was a huge land speed racer. Um, but he set a new land speed uh, world record of 246 miles an hour um, in South Africa, and he was driving what he, he called the Bluebird. So the Bluebird had a bunch of different iterations and evolutions through its through its time. Um, you know, they had different engines and things like that. But this time. It had a 23.9, a 24 liter supercharged plane engine. And um, on the first pass, he actually broke 250 miles an hour. You know how land speed racing is one way, one way, and then you got to come back within the hour and it takes the average of the two runs. So the first time he broke 250 miles an hour, making him the first man ever on land to break 250 miles an hour. And he got knighted for it. That's awesome. Yeah. It's
0: yeah. so cool. Like, hey, you just
1: <laughs> It was won, a pretty big you know, deal, obviously. Crazy land
0: speed, and here we're gonna night you. That would be like an yeah, ultimate. He, he was British. And really the Brits like totally
1: dominated land speed racing in the nineteen twenties and thirties. I mean, you had um, Malcolm Campbell, Henry Seagrave, you had George Aston. All those guys were, you know, piloting basically airplane engine land speed record cars, and they were constantly duking it out all over the world.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it was a Really exciting
1: time, especially back then when, you know, 250 miles was an hour was unheard of. Now you can go pick up something from a dealership that can go close to that. And yeah, in some cases, could have beat that. a nice penny, but you can get yeah. pretty close to it. Yeah. But really, really cool time as well. And, you know, obviously after that, it was jet engines and things like that. So it, totally took it to a whole different level. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. And then the last one up here, February 6, 1966, 55 years ago, um, the first Daytona 24 hour event was won by Ken Miles and Lloyd Ruby, his co-driver, and they were driving a Mark II GT40. So, of course, this was 1966 and this is the Ford versus Ferrari battle. Um, now, Ferrari, of course, in 1966 lost at Daytona. They lost at Sebring to the Fords and they lost at Le Mans to the Fords. So Ferrari, bad year for them, yeah. So the Ferrari P Type was pissed, <laughs> and so anyway, in 1967, they actually came back, and they did what Ford did to them at Le Mans, and they did a one-two-three side-by-side finish at Daytona.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, this
1: was a, a really like you know kind of spit back in your face type of thing. Um, but <laughs> the the, the weird awesome. part about this, so you get you guys have heard of the Ferrari 365 GTB4 Cam. You know, oh, yeah, the, the car that nick cage talks about and gone in 60 seconds mm-hmm. you would not be a self-indulgent wiener sir you would be a connoisseur <laughs> <laughs> and um they actually named that car unofficially the daytona so the ferrari daytona people have heard of that they know what it looks like that is actually how it got that name
0: is in celebration of this exact victory of the showboat in your face three cars first second third yeah i love it like hey henry <laughs> what do you think about this year? <laughs> yeah, how do you like them apples? Uh, it was such a different, you know, competitive time where now you have a lot more competitors. You know, a lot more people playing, and obviously a lot of money and engineering going oh, into it. Oh yeah, totally different world now. Yeah, it really is. Well, Back the then, thing, it was, like everybody, and I get you know, you have your,
1: I guess american pride Mm -hmm. but really it was almost unfair like ford threw millions of dollars at essentially what was a small race car manufacturer because ferrari was not a big car manufacturer they built enough road cars to make just enough money to fuel their racing Mm -hmm. and ferrari came in there with millions of dollars buying all the best drivers this and that and it still took them years to beat them now i'm not (laughs) knocking them but it's, Ferrari yeah. had a great formula. It was great to see the competition, but everybody felt like Ford was the underdog. That's like the persona that every,
0: that every American mm. has, but it was totally the opposite way around. Yeah. Ferrari was the underdog. Like yep. <laughs> they didn't have much, yeah, exactly. they made nice cars and they made nice cars to race. Yeah, that exactly. was their whole
1: thing. Like Ford had all these different people, you know, Carroll Shelby in the mix and all that. And then Ferrari's You know, still building out of the same shed they've build, been building out of for years. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it would have been awesome to be back around and see those races. I'm sure it was a, a whole different ball game at that too oh yeah well anyway this has been this week in automotive history thanks so much to everybody who's uh, so far listened streamed downloaded and subscribed to the podcast we can't thank you enough
0: you know obviously uh, that's why we get up here and do this yeah I appreciate it you know very much we're we're getting up there and downloads um, all that fun stuff
1: <laughs> yeah so thanks a lot anyway we'll be back next week uh, with uh, more garbage to tell you guys keep cars interesting
0: bye <laughs> bye, bye.
1: This podcast has been brought to you by Almer's Auto Care in Cincinnati, Ohio, providing service beyond compare since 1936.